So uh, my name's um, Hugh Morris, um, introducing uh, ABN Podcast. I'm a neurologist and a geneticist at the UCL Institute of Neurology in London. It's an enormous uh, pleasure and privilege to be able to speak with Professor Martin Samuels, who's Professor of Neurology in Harvard Medical School and works at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. This year he gave the Gordon Holmes lecture at the ABN meeting, uh, How Neurologists Think, What My Errors Taught Me, and this was really a masterclass in understanding clinical reasoning, the cognitive processes that go on that affect our ability to mis- make mistakes in clinical practice and um, clinical diagnosis. To start with, I-, I thought I might ask you a bit about what happens in the initial part of a consultation. It's um, said that some clinicians or many expert clinicians in, in internal medicine make a diagnosis within 90 seconds the first meeting the patient. So obviously things happen very, very early on when we meet a patient. Can you say a little bit about that and how that, what's going on in that time frame? Yeah, I'll refer to, uh, to the work of Daniel Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize in Economics some uh, time ago, uh, and whose book, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, is something to read, I think, for all, all clinicians, in particular neurologists. He, he makes the point that there are really two subsystems within the uh, human nervous system, which he calls System 1 and System 2, we would call them the limbic brain and the cerebral cortex. Uh, the system one is the fast thinking system. It was meant for survival in the wild and uh, very important for us uh, surviving the exigencies of uh, ancient times. Uh, slow thinking is the cortical system. Slower uh, involves uh, cognitive reasoning. Uh, it's really quite involuntary, the activity of the, uh, of the limbic brain. As we know ourselves, if we are faced with a sudden fright, our heart rate goes up, we sweat, we actually have no control over this, and the same is true with regard to uh, thinking of a diagnosis rather, rather rapidly. So when a, an experienced doctor uh, is faced with a certain scenario, it is really involuntary. They, they immediately uh, have some theory that they need to test, and virtually all of our systems work this way. That We know the visual system works in a similar uh, way. So that's thinking fast in Kahneman's terms. We don't have any control over it, and the real question is, uh, how often are we accurate with this thinking fast, and can we step back when we need to and think more slowly? Okay, that's um, that's that's very helpful. I think that um, just in a sort of wider context, perhaps we'll come back to clinical decision-making in a second, but just in a wider context, making mistakes in medical practice is obviously a huge issue in the United States, and it's becoming an increasing issue here, particularly the litigation and um, patients and families seeking redress after medical problems. How much do you think that affects our ability to be honest about mistakes and uh, to learn from uh, what's happened, fearfulness about litigation? I think it has been a very significant problem. Uh, Even before the litigation problem became a serious problem, I think just the shame that people have about making a mistake uh, inhibited people from talking about it. The culture is changing a little bit in the United States for the positive, I think. That is, a, there's a, a greater and greater effort, more openness about uh, speaking about errors and try to speak about them in, in circumstances in which the people are protected against litigation, peer-reviewed circumstances in which the records are kept uh, quiet so that people can speak about them. One of the reasons I began to do this, uh, collect my own errors and talk about them, was to try to help to counter this effect. I think... Uh, I'm somewhat protected, not completely protected, uh, obviously, against litigation, but more so in that I I have around me a giant department uh, of prestigious medical school and all their legal help. So I'm a little less afraid than a person who uh, is alone out there in practice. I feel it's my duty, in a way, to speak up and make it known that that I make a lot of mistakes, 
Hopefully, uh, most of my mistakes don't lead to harm. They don't hurt patients. They're mostly cognitive errors. But of course, they potentially could uh, cause trouble. And uh, it's, it's critical that we, uh, we analyze our own practices and understand when we're right and when we're wrong. I think one of the most common mistakes is that uh, very experienced people don't necessarily get better. We've learned this from the expertise literature in chess or in any other field of expertise. It takes uh, about 10,000 hours of focused learning, meaning feedback, to become a real expert, a world-class expert, like a world-class chess player. If you don't have any feedback and you're not playing with anybody who's better than you are, as you know probably from playing tennis, you'll just never get get better. Uh, So what you need is a lot of practice and repetition and feedback. Um, and if that's done in a fairly safe environment, and if senior people take uh, take the lead, yeah. then I think it's going to be uh, it'll protect people to some extent against the fear of litigation and shame. Yeah, yeah. And you think there's a process for, or there's a role for anonymization of records and actually putting things into the domain without it being linked back to um, specific cases or instances, and, and having a sort of clearinghouse for for things that have happened. Absolutely. Well, we have these morbidity and mortality conferences, as we call them in which we present uh, errors, overt errors, and we talk about them uh, in, in a peer-reviewed circumstance in which it is protected against, yeah. uh, uh, against litigation. It's a step in the right direction. It would be better if we could be open. Yeah. Uh, this, there, there, is a, there is a culture shift. Uh, doctors are encouraged now to apologize to patients, to explain to patients when something has gone amiss. Um, but it's still a great fear, uh, uh, litigation and the internal shame of, of not, not getting the answer right. Yeah. Quite a lot is said about um, sort of systems errors and, you know, by analogy with aircraft and aircraft pilots and the process that they go through in terms of checking and double checking and the, the, the network of things that has to go wrong for a mistake. Do you see that as a, a bigger thing to tackle or more the individual personal reflection on what you're doing in your diagnostic practice? Well, they're both important. I, I have a much greater interest in the cognitive uh, issues, uh, probably because I'm a neurologist <laughs> and uh, I'm interested in how the brain sure. processes information. Uh, most of the brunt of this literature is actually about systems errors. So the idea of checklists that my, my Brigham colleague Atul Gawande has made very popular. One can't argue about this, and I, I think it's true that it's worth doing, more so in procedural specialties. Yeah. And so he's a surgeon. Yeah. Uh, Gawande is a surgeon. I think in surgery, it's very much like flying an airplane, and a checklist is very useful. Checklists can help us uh, in cognitive functioning as well, but there's a several categories of errors which are not amenable to checklists or system corrections. It's really uh, intrapsychic. It's yeah. happening in yeah. our own brains. And those are the ones that I've been most interested in. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Just moves us on really to perhaps the meat of your talk where you talked about, gave some clinical cases and talked about errors and, and t- talked about things that happen with framing, um, reference ranges, the sort of bias that I think a lot of us recognize when we've seen a recent case and then we immediately try to diagnose that the next patient, the next patient we see. You've obviously done a lot of research thinking about these issues. How, how has understanding that changed your practice and changed the way that you approach diagnosis? Well, I don't have any evidence yet, and it's very hard kind of evidence to collect that uh, what I've done has actually had any effect. What, what I've done is to try to uh, make these unconscious processes become conscious to take the system one, in Kahneman's words, and turn it into system two. So when I see a patient or am presented a patient in the context of a teaching round, uh, I now uh, have, have in my own practice utilized and tried to teach others to utilize a method whereby we try to understand what the unconscious processes are all about. 
So we'll actually say, do you think it's possible that we're, uh, we're being framed, that this case has been framed in a certain way, and therefore it is making us think about it in a certain fashion? Mm. Can, can you or, say a bit more about fra- what framing is and how that affects the case? Framing is the way a case is presented. So the one I presented was a 40-some-year-old woman who became weak on a trip during a trip to Mexico. Now, those of you listening to me, uh, neurologists, I know that you have a theory, as I told the group here. Um, that's thinking fast. Um, and there's nothing wrong with thinking fast. I don't want to undermine this. We have to work quickly, and it's useful to think quickly. Remember, this is involuntary. So when you hear somebody got weak in Mexico, you're probably thinking of some infectious disease, perhaps a diarrheal disease that might have been associated with a fish toxin or something, or maybe a guillain Sure. caused by an exposure to an organism. In actual fact, it turned out that this patient had an illness which had nothing at all to do with her trip to Mexico. She had lupus, which caused Sjogren's syndrome, which made her potassium go down, which made her weak. There's an example of framing. If I s- said to you, uh, a woman with lupus and dry mouth and dry eyes got weak, you'd have a certain number of things that you'd think about, and one of them probably would be hypokalemic paralysis. When I say a, a woman got weak in Mexico, you think about a whole group of uh, sure. other diseases. Uh, so this is what I sometimes call the New England Journal CPC phenomenon. So those of you who receive the New England Journal know there's a CPC in there, and it has a headline, 49-year-old woman got weak in Mexico. And most of us just go to the end of the CPC and look the answer up and see if we're right, well, yeah. whether our fast thinking worked. Yeah. And if it did, fine, don't go on. But if it didn't work... You, uh, you are bound to read that CPC and learn about it. In other words, take the system one thinking and convert it into system two thinking. Think yeah. through the case carefully. Yeah. So that's an example of framing. Yeah, yeah. Another thing which is very close to my heart is um, what you spoke about in your talk, which is over-reliance on tests and, and people getting very, very test-focused and that we have a almost um, religious faith in, in tests giving us the right answer. Can you say a bit about what your feelings about this? this is? Go, to go back to your question about litigation, I think one of the uh, issues around fear of litigation is to over-test. There's many, many risks with over-testing. One of them, of course, is expense. Uh, it must be true uh, in the rest of the world, but certainly in the, in the United States, there's sure. an enormous worry about expense now. Uh, and these tests are expensive. To get a whole battery of genetic tests, MRIs, and so on, on uh, everybody with a particular syndrome doesn't make any sense. But there's actually, uh, to me, a, a greater concern, and that is what I call the incidentaloma, the finding on the image or on the genetic test yeah. that's irrelevant or probably irrelevant um, and certainly and can lead to more investigations and even dangerous and even lethal inter- yeah. interventions. Yeah. Um, so it, it, isn't, uh, it, it isn't a game, this business of getting tests to yeah. avoid trouble. And what you do is cause other kinds of trouble. Yeah. Uh, so you, it's very important that when you order a test that you have in your mind, if you're a Bayesian, what's the base probability, the prior probability yeah. of a particular disease? Yeah. And, and how good is this test with a certain base probability? Uh, what, are, what are the negative and positive predictive values of this test? In other words, how many false positives and false negatives will there be? And if you don't keep that in mind, you can get yourself in a lot of trouble with testing. It yeah. certainly is not the panacea in medicine. Yeah. And are you aware of cases where patients or families have sought redress when there's been over-testing and it's come up with... Uh, unintended consequences? Is that something that patients have uh, started to focus on in the U.S.? Well, some have certainly focused on this. Uh, uh, One uh, disease or or syndrome is the Chiari-1 malformation, which is the sort of low-hanging tonsils of the cerebellum. Patients come with one sort of a complaint or another, dizziness, numb, tired. Um, The doctor gets an MR, and it's read by the radiologist as showing a Chiari-1 malformation. The patient goes to the Internet 
frighten themselves half to death about the Chiari 1 malformation. And they might go to somebody, uh, and if you go to enough people, of course, you'll get an operation uh, and, uh, and a decompression, which probably won't help. Yeah. And uh, then it might come to light that the patient will, uh, turns out to have MS, in fact. Uh, and they'll be quite angry that they underwent a posterior fossa decompression. Sure. Right? So there's an example of, uh, of a syndrome for which there's very little good clinical correlation that will turn up on tests. Genetic tests are even more frightening to me. I have a very sad case of a young, um, a young boy who had a family history of Huntington's disease, and he began to misbehave in school. The doctor, without thinking, um, or not certainly not thinking clearly, was thinking fast, ordered a genetic test for Huntington's disease, and it was positive. So now you have a, an 11-year-old child who's misbehaving in school, almost certainly not because of this disease becoming symptomatic, sure. Uh, who now has Huntington's disease. Yeah. Now, what are we going to do about that? We don't have a treatment for Huntington's disease. Yeah. We know that people there's a high incidence of suicide in people who hear that they have Huntington's disease. Um, that is a, a, that's a real dangerous misuse of a, of a very sophisticated and important test. Yeah. And I, I think one can think of anecdotes of virtually all testing, not only in neurological medicine, yeah. and all of medicine around this. Yeah, thanks. And I think this is going to be a huge issue for us in the future with genetic testing and, um, and imaging becoming cheaper and more, more widely available. If I could just close up by asking if you could, if I could for the listeners for some sort of top tips or some top bits of advice that you would give people to try and improve their appreciation of making mistakes and avoiding making mistakes, what sort of ways you'd recommend that people try to change their practice to, to improve their diagnostic skills? Well, one thing I think people need to understand is it's, it's few futile to uh, to not make mistakes if you're going to practice medicine. There are going to be mistakes. I have an icon on my computer that's called My Mistakes into which I drop my errors every time I recognize one, and I put in several a day into there, right? You can't, you can't practice something as complex as medicine and not make a lot of errors. Uh, secondly, errors are important because what they allow us to do is change something from a dogma that we learn. So you learn a dogma from the great professor who taught you something, and but you make a mistake. And in the process of making that mistake, you actually learn something. Virtually everything that we've learned has come from mistakes. So mistakes are underrated as a positive thing. Um, now, we don't try to make mistakes. Obviously, we're not trying to take out the wrong kidney. Uh, we're trying to do the right thing. Uh, how to do this. One is we can use uh, Atul Gawande's idea of uh, taking tips from other industries like the airline industry, having organized very careful ways of doing things, ask a series of questions, uh, fixed questions. This can be computer-based. That can sometimes help us. And the other thing, which has not been uh, documented to work yet, is to try to make these unconscious processes conscious. Um, and uh, sit back for a moment and say, was I right about, uh, about this woman who went to Mexico? Maybe it doesn't have anything to do with going to Mexico. And that, I think, will help you. Can I prove it? No, I can't prove it. But I think we need to get over the guilt about making mistakes, do the best we can every day, collect them, and then make sure that we get feedback. Did we get that case right? That case that we said was sleep apnea. Was it actually sleep apnea or did yeah. it turn out to be narcolepsy? And, and correct it in your temporal lobe. I think that's the, the best approach, but it's a lifelong process. That's the wonderful thing about neurology. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for a marvellous uh, overview of your thinking and uh, the Gordon Holmes lecture. And it's very nice to meet you and to, to talk with you today. Thanks very much. My pleasure, Hugh.